0: the book of 1 Timothy. And we're continuing to talk today about peace. Peace. I've been pondering this in my own life over the last few weeks, about how really the one true antithesis of the peace of Christ in the heart of our flesh is, indeed, discontentment. Think about that for a second. And let's just call it what it is, as the old adage is, call a spade a spade. To be discontent is to sin against the Lord. No amens. To be discontent is to sin against the Lord. No matter the reason, no matter the circumstances, no matter the environment. So by that reality, by that statement alone... We all can say very clearly that we have sin in our lives. I mean, we know other sins, right? But the sin of discontentment is the opposite of peace. Fear, doubt, where does it come from? I think it roots in discontentment. We wish we were in a different place. We wish we had different circumstances. We long for a different scenario. We're not at peace where we are. That's the whole idea of being discontent. We're not at peace where we are. We're not at peace with what we have. We're not at peace with who we are. We're not at peace with what we want. And Beloved, the opposite, or the outcome of discontentment is despair, hardness, bitterness, frustration, fickleness, Insecurity, and the list goes on and on. For me, anger. When things aren't going my way, I'm angry. Not at anyone, just in general. I could punch the air, you know. That's my protection. I get angry. Why? Because when I'm angry, I feel strong. How about you? It's like an ant pointing his finger. In God's face. As Brother Trey read out of Job this morning. You know. Who are you to question me? But that's what we do. That's what we are beloved. Even in our regenerated flesh. Our flesh is weak. Our flesh is sinful. Our flesh is wasting away. And it will in its corruption die. It will die. And it will be destroyed. And for we who are in Christ. It will be renewed. The soul shall not die. The spirit shall not die. But the sinful flesh will. It's a promise. In philosophy circles, without getting into the weeds, let's just say that it's been for a very long, long time understood that the simplest answer is typically the thing that we should focus on. Jesus taught us that when he says faith like a child. Unless your faith is as, one of these, a simile. It's making a comparison that as a child believes anything and everything, so should the faith of a child of God be. Not bogged down in the weeds and the ditches and the thickness of the depths of all these crazy stuff. Not with absolute constant plowing against the mud of contemplation but just sitting still like a leaf on a pond, flowing in the wind of the Spirit, that is literally blowing where it wishes. Now think about the difference between plowing through mud and resting on the top of the water surface. A child and a child's faith rests in a simple way. A child can be discontent, but it doesn't take much to pacify them, does it? I know you just had a horrible at You want a piece of candy? Candy. Hey. You see. We have Christ. Candy can make all sorts of boo-boos be better for a child, but we have Christ. And yet we still are discontent. Oh, no, you don't have Christ, some will say. Christ says you have him. Better yet, Christ says he has you. And if your faith rests in him, you belong to him. And the reason that you know you belong to him is because you know him. Beloved, this letter is going to deal with a lot of discontentment. This letter that Paul, these letters that Paul has written to his protege, Timothy, to this elder, to this young boy who is now in charge of an entire city of overseeing the joy of the saints and their well-being in the faith. Timothy's not evangelizing them. He is overseeing those who have heard the good report of the finished work of God Almighty through the one he set apart and anointed for himself to satisfy his justice in his death. That is gospel. That's a modern-day literal definition of gospel, what I just said. But we're discontent. By nature, we're discontent. And we're always looking for that next experience. We're always looking for that next understanding. We're, we're trying to seek after that next epiphany. Hey! We can ride the waves. See, we, won't, we don't want still water. We don't want that which is promised in John's revelation. The sea of glass. What is that picture there? No waves. No ripples. What is that an image of? Absolute, eternal, sovereign, divine peace. That's what it's a picture of. And guess what's happening in that imagery? There's no sea of glass. In the imagery of that, expo- of that, that exposition, the wicked are being cast into the lake of fire. So you'd think there'd be a little turmoil in the water, right? No, absolute contentment. Absolute confidence. Absolute peace. Absolute rejoicing. Because all is well with the soul of righteousness. Beloved, I really think that this is the point. This is the this is the stick. This is the this is the 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 wrench and the cog of Christian living in America right now. For the true church, is that we have lost our joy in Christ. And we long for another lover. We long for a greater knowledge. We long for a deeper experience when everything that God is has been revealed to us in Christ. And there is nothing that He has for us that He has not already given us. And we're all guilty. Some people think preaching ought to be convicting. No, the Word of God is convicting. Some people think preaching ought to be only theological things about redemption. But yet, that's not what the apostles taught. The apostles taught doing. The apostles taught being. The apostles taught and commanded joy. Do you know the whole expression of believe on Jesus Christ is a commandment from God to His people? Change the way you are thinking and believe on the things that I say about who I am. This is Christ speaking. We have summed it up in repent, believe. Repent and have faith. But we don't know what that means. And so we're discontent even in our understanding of these things. Beloved, we're not here to be discontent. We're here so that as the elders oversee our joy, we are learning to be composed in the simplicity of grace. To, to rest in the sufficiency of Christ. And realizing that that resting, that striving to rest and working to rest is a spiritual battle. Not a physical one, not an emotional one, not a mental one, not an academic one, not a theological one. It is a spiritual battle with which the spiritual forces of evil are working against the very flesh that we live in and the power of God the Holy Spirit who does as He pleases with the elect and the non elect will guide us to truth and patience and peace. And the outcome of that will be joy. We were in Philippians, we've been in all sorts of ways. So we're, we're Paul, what I'm doing, is, for those of you who haven't been here, is I am taking the idea of grace, mercy, and peace. We talked about grace, we talked about mercy, now we're talking about peace. This is week three. Next week we're going to talk about peace with each other. Today is peace of the soul and the mind in the context of our assurance because of God's grace and mercy toward us. Where do we find our contentment in the Christian life? That's why it's easy for a pastor. Let me change that. It's easy for a preacher to guilt people into coming to church. It's impossible for a pastor to do so. Because guilt should never drive you to the cross of Christ. Guilt should never drive you, and fear should never drive you to the pew. Guilt should never press you into loving your neighbor. Grace does that. Grace does that. And the pulpit is to help us steer our household of faith into the right direction that gives glory to Christ and deals with issues and expressly dealing with them as the scripture commands us to deal with them. And so peace and joy is a, are commandments of God. He commands us to be content. He commands us not to complain. He commands us through Paul to the Thessalonians to not even worry about other people's business. How far have we come from learning the simplicity of what God is teaching us? And I hear the voices already in my head. I hear them. I've had these conversations. Some of our very church members have even accuse me of being a legalist because I tell the body what they should be doing, that is demonic to accuse us of that. Because to say that we aren't to do certain things because of whose we are is to ignore the full counsel of the word of God. It's blasphemous. It's spitting, according to Paul and Hebrews, it's spitting in the face of Christ. Because we don't have to think about how we relate to one another. If we think purity in the faith is just knowing the gospel, then we don't need the Bible. We just need a couple of chapters out of it. We need a couple of things. We don't even need Genesis. You didn't need to know the gospels there. You see how silly that is? Beloved, I say that. Because I think the simplest thing is that we don't read the scripture. We're not, re- we're not reading the Bible. Out of the last dozen or so, and I haven't counted them, I just thought about this yesterday. Out of the last dozen or so conversations I've had with Christians about theological things that they're concerned about in their own life and understanding, not one of them have received this epiphany from the reading of the word that has brought their concern to their mind. Not one of them. None of them. Not one of them. They read an article here. They watched a sermon here. They had some conversation with somebody over here. They were thinking in the shower. See, I'm dangerous in the shower. I don't know what it is. You're just in this mode of doing your business, and your brain is like on fire. Is every, am I the only crazy person in here? Okay, everybody's all right. And I thought, man, if I could get me a waterproof recorder, but you know the hot water would run out. <laughs> I'd never get out of there. I mean, literally. Last night, I'm trying to get out of the shower so I could go write something down that was really just awesome, and I couldn't remember it by the time I got out. Waterproof ink and paper. I don't know what to do. I digress. Glad to know I'm not the only nut in the house. we think about these things, and that's where where we get these ideas. We think about them. We are introduced to them. Beloved, these exterior ideas are the devil's work. He is the master of these exterior ideas. And they always, 100% of the time, sound spiritual because that's his trick. Did God really say, He didn't say, let's look at what God said. He said, did God really say that you would die? And every false teacher, the ones that are bothering Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, that we'll get to in a couple of weeks, I promise, are questioning what God's word has said, what the apostles have written. And they're taking it deeper than what's given, out of context into a pretext of their own conversation in their own mind. And, beloved, we are guilty. We get discontented when we try to go outside of the simplicity of grace. And you know what? Then we start to doubt our salvation. We ask the question, am I really a Christian? Well, by definition, a Christian is one who does what Scripture teaches them to do. Let me say that again. By definition, a Christian is the one who does what Scripture teaches them to do, who does it. There are, there are so-called unconverted Christians. Now listen to the play on words I'm having here. Because the word Christian was a pejorative term. What does that mean? That means it was a mockery of those people who were living as Christ's apostles had commanded them to. And the people of the culture looked at them and mocked them. Said, so look at those little Christ followers. That's what Christian means, Christ follower. The people who live like Jesus. The people who act like Jesus, the people who talk like Jesus, the people who love like Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you. The evangelical world of southeast Georgia is so far from living and acting like Jesus, it'll blow your mind. The minute Jesus became a Republican, it became demonic. The minute it, you know, evangelical church, majority of it is just a cult. It traps people. Sovereign grace movement, majority of it's just a cult. Reform movement, listen, anytime there's a movement, it's going to be a cult before the end of it. It's going to take somebody else, it's going to take the thoughts of simple teaching of scripture and it's going to pervert them into possible ideas or philosophies or incredible accounting and it's going to make it sound like something that the Bible doesn't teach to the point that we ponder ourselves into discontentment. And then we've got the King James only controversy. And then we've got this controversy and that controversy and the marrow issue. And I'm not saying these things shouldn't be handled. We have to handle controversies. But how about we stop making them? Where do they start? Up here in our brains. And we get discontent and we say, well, I am a Christian. I don't know. Are you living as Christ called you to live? Well, am I an elect? Do you believe in Christ as the scripture commands Has God granted you the faith to rest in him? The idea is not, am I elect so that I can believe? The idea is, do you hear the command to believe and follow it? And guess what the scripture says? The natural man cannot do that. The unconverted man cannot do that. The man that's not born of the spirit, John 3, cannot rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Nicodemus, in the conversation Jesus had with him, could not rest in the instruction Jesus gave him. Nicodemus could not obey the command that Jesus was giving him. And so Jesus gives these these different, uh, this contrast. Those who are believing in me have eternal life. And those who are not believing in me are condemned already. He was telling Nicodemus he was condemned already because he was not believing in me. This is simple teaching. These aren't to be, do- we're not to dive into what Jesus really, 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 really meant. And then decide about where God's gonna really be thinking about certain things in the context of that conversation and how God was looking at Nicodemus. You know why we're not supposed to go there? Because God did not reveal himself to us that way. And that is to ask, is God really like this? Did God really say this? And this is where a pastor versus a preacher. Will start to become very clear. Because I despise, I despise when people cause you to doubt the very teaching of Christ. Because that's the devil's business. And the flesh is ready for it, isn't it? We don't even have to talk to ourselves, those thoughts just pop into our minds. So, not am I a Christian, am I elect? Am I even eternally chosen before the foundation of the world? Oh, what am I? How many of you, just by a show of hands, have had an evangelistic conversation with a friend or family member or neighbor or coworker, and that has come out of their mouth? They've asked, well, how do I know I'm elect? Yeah, all of us. I hear it all the time. It is the number one rebuttal to my evangelism. Because when I teach what the Scripture teaches concerning God's promise to His people... The very next question out of most of their mouths is, well, how do I know I'm one of God's people? You're not listening. You're not listening. But then we get discontent, and we, then, then we have this word saved. Am I saved? Am I saved from what? I don't know. Have you saved your money? Are you saved from famine? Are you saved See, the idea of redemption and salvation, we have taken the word, are you saved or you're not saved? You better get saved. You see how bad that is? This is not about us getting saved. And I love statistics and I love data and I love stuff as it relates to anthropology. I love it. I love to read what people think and how they operate because I can't figure myself out, but I can listen to what other people are saying. And it's a lot easier In that context. But I see people talk about salvation and I see salvation being used in such a broad way um, to really think, people get to the point to really think that if they haven't come to a certain degree of understanding of things that they're not saved. But what does the Bible say about salvation? Salvation is of what? The Lord. Salvation is by grace. For by grace you have been saved. Now, we've already gone through that. We've gone through that for the last year and a half, two years, three years, ten years now. We've talked about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God. All three persons are God. One being. Don't forget that. And God's grace saves us. What does that mean? God's mercy saves us. God's loving kindness saves us. God's purposes save us. And what does that all boil down to? God's promise. God's promise saves us. So then, when we settle that, okay, God is the one who saves. So we're saved by the promise of God through Jesus Christ. Okay, great. Oh, sure, I'm saved, but am I born again? <laughs> you see, and it never ends. It never ends. Well, I don't know. Let me give you a survey. The survey's not in the Bible. The quiz isn't here in the scripture. Someone confesses to be in the faith. And they have learned and been taught the gospel clearly. And God causes them to rest in the sufficiency of the work of Christ. Then we can consider them born again. What happens when they doubt? We reassure them based on the promises of God, not on their performance. Based on the promises of God, not on their person. Based on the promises of God, not on their correct profession. Because anytime we put the condition on anything that the man is, does, or produces, we are preaching a false gospel. Any. I don't give a flip what it is. Any condition is a false gospel. Any condition is a false gospel. When it comes from me and you. That doesn't, lead us to, that doesn't let us ignore faith. That doesn't let us ignore necessary conditions because a condition put on me and who I am and what I've done and all this kind of stuff is not the promise of God. But yet, without faith, we tell people they're under condemnation. Without belief given by the, the Spirit, we don't tell people that they're justified. This is, this is simple stuff, y'all. Faith is a necessary condition of salvation, which is a necessary condition of redemption, which is a necessary condition of justification. You're saved by grace through faith. If you don't believe you're saved by grace, you are not justified to anybody. It doesn't matter what, how God sees you. If you're elected, you're going to get come to faith five years from now. That's not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is where are you now? What do you believe this moment? And what are you resting this very second? You see how easy it is to be discontent? Mark my word, beloved. What I just said in the last five minutes will make me a heretic in many people's eyes. And you know what I say to them? Que sera, sera. You know why? Because I can't worry about what people think about the truth of Scripture. That's God's business. It's God's business. If I'm wrong, the Spirit of God will correct me. If I'm saying it wrong, the Spirit of God will guide me, and we'll all learn together. But we can have peace in our heart and mind because of the promises of God. I want us to turn to Romans 8. And I want us to read. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. As a matter of fact, I don't have a whole lot of preaching to do after that little introduction because God's word says enough. And I'm going to show you a little bit through our walk.ing We're going to go through Romans 8 real quick. We're going to also go through Hebrews, several different chapters, reading probably 20 minutes worth of Scripture in the next 40. Because the Scripture teaches us. So two things are going to happen. One, you're going to learn the truth that the Scripture is trying to teach you and teach me, teach us, and we're going to understand peace from the position of assurance. And then we're also going to learn how exposition is really done. Because the scripture actually preaches itself and then we pause and ponder it and make application. In Hebrews, excuse me, in Romans chapter 8, we'll go to Hebrews in a minute. In Romans chapter 8, Paul starts with these words. There is therefore now. All right? What does that mean? He has said some things and then he's saying therefore because of what I've just taught you, there is now. So what he's about to say is present. A present reality. And what is a present reality? What is the present reality he's talking about? No condemnation. So presently, there is therefore no condemnation. Who's he talking about? For those who are in Christ Jesus. What has he already said? Romans 1 through 7. What has he already said in Romans 4 and 5? It is faith. Resting in the sufficiency of God's promise to His people to effectually apply justice through the anointed one that He has sent. That's what Christ means, by the way. The anointed one who was sent. To satisfy His wrath that righteousness is upheld. Why? As a substitute for His people's sin that He might forgive them having their sins paid for in righteousness so that they would become the righteousness of God, imputed to them, credited to them from Christ. Okay? So those who are in Christ Jesus have the peace of God. And then he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now we have a lot of things to talk about when we use the word law, but ultimately we need to understand that law is anything that God has asks, asked asks commanded or written in regard to conditions for blessings and promises or also condemnation like we see in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. If you do not do these things, you die for the wages of sin is, as Paul has already said, death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So we are in the Spirit. We have been set free from the law of sin and death. Our guilty verdict has been placed on Christ who has been punished in our place so the law has no power over us in condemnation. Okay? You need to understand this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could not give you life. It will always kill you if you seek life by obedience. I'm not talking about temporal experiences. And Trey... Spoke on this not a few weeks ago. How did he do so? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. There's the substitute. And for sin, for the sake of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I've already said that. I've already explained that who walk not according to the flesh, not according to the precepts, not according to what we can do, not according to obedience, not according to all these spiritual things that we think are spiritual, that we are doing in fleshly ways, not in discontentment thinking we need to do better, not in performance, but according to the Spirit. Because the Spirit informs the mind of the regenerate of the sufficiency of the work of Christ, and then by the reading of the Word of God, as he sees fit, Through the assembly and the oversight and the maturing of the saints together, we individually and corporately grow into our understanding of what God has done deeply. More so some than others. That's why some people seem to never be shaken. And their faith is always rock solid, but some of us it's like, Oh, I saw a rock. I didn't stub my toe on it, but I saw it and now I'm all upset. You see? I know I'm going to stub my toe before the day's over. Well, move the rock. I don't want to go near it because I'll stub my toe, but I know I'm going to stub my toe anyway, you know? I mean, that's how most of us are, right? About something. Sin is on in son of the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous will cry the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, how am I doing, what do I want, what about lust, what about sin, these things that I know I shouldn't desire, that I do desire, oh no, I must not be born again because i got sin in my life, oh my gosh, i got to get better so that I can be better for, and all this stuff, and it's just this turmoil, It's the and it's where the Romans were. I, I taught 37 weeks in Romans, it was a very quick read-through. And it's on the church website if you want to see it, it's not... Impressive or anything, but it's just like what we're doing then. We read and we talk and we read and talk because the scripture pretty much preaches itself in these letters. And so we walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. For those who live according to the flesh, verse 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And sometimes we labor in fear and discontentment spiritually because we're trying so hard to do everything correctly so that we can prove to our own consciences consciousness that we are indeed born again when the Bible is the root of our assurance and its promises therein. Because those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who converts. The Spirit is the one who regenerates. The Spirit is the one who teaches. The Spirit is the one who gives confidence. The Spirit is the one who grants faith. The Spirit is the one who gives repentance. And so we're thinking wrongly when we think, what must I do to be or go or grow versus what has God promised me about these things? Spirit. The hardest thing that we can do. Let me just talk about this for a second. And and Paul talks about it also in this very same chapter because it's the very next thing. Well I can't even pray correctly, right? How many of you don't raise your hand, but I mean how many of you are discontent with your prayer life? <laughs> Why? Because you start and it's like What's going on? Where did all these thoughts come from? What's happening here? So the discipline for me for prayer is first to to, to read and to praise and to soak in the word. And and then I realize sometimes that I'm trying to pray in my flesh. Sometimes I realize that I'm thinking about the flesh, that I'm setting my mind on the things according to the flesh. How am I going to pray? Why can't I pray? God help me pray. rather than just resting in the reality that God's Spirit says He would pray and intercede for us. How does that flesh itself out practically? I think you're just going to have to experience it. We see the disciplines of how we should pray, how we should model our prayers, when we should pray, about what things we should pray, the posture and the attitude of prayer, but ultimately it's about the Spirit of God. And as long as we're trying to be the prayer warriors that the culture says we should be, we're never going to pray in the Spirit. You see how it's so easy for people to want to get mixed up in the supernatural aspect of that? Ooh, if I pray in the Spirit, then it must be another tongue. You know? Nope. It's not what the Scripture teaches. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, the things that God has done and promised the person of Christ. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Is death not the outcome? The destruction of our joy, the destruction of our contentment, the eradication of our peace. When we constantly labor over who we are and what we're trying to do and why we can't be the Christians we want to be. I mean, you know what's really a cycle, a vicious cycle, is when you're discontent and you're frustrated and you're angry and you're bitter. And then you're bitter and discontent and frustrated and angry about your anger, frustration, bitterness, and discontentment. And you need to hit your head on the rock and go to sleep a little while. You see? Let somebody kick the rock in our heads. And maybe we'll be a little more spiritual during that coma. Not to make jokes about comas. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind... Listen to this. Listen to this. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. It's peace. Beloved, you've got to read your Bible. Don't Don't read verses. Read your Bible. Read the letters of God. Read the Spirit of God speaking to His people. Read the Bible. Read it. I cannot tell you that this is the only place you are going to find contentment and peace. And the only means through which you will find rest for your souls and the only place and the only discipline that will cause you to make good, wise choices and to get out of our emotional turmoil, fear, and frustration. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now, beloved, we know in the context of hostility toward God, these unconverted mind is hostile to God. But, beloved, I'm going to tell you right now, the converted mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Because it violates the promise of God's peace. It contradicts what God has promised us in Christ. And not only what God has promised, what God has finished. What God has fulfilled. See, an unbeliever, when I say these things, they go, Huh? I don't, just don't understand how I can, can be at peace with God without cleaning myself up. Without being something better, without doing something. Well, that's the whole point. You can't be at peace with God until He shows you how He has made peace with you. Those who have the mind, the cell, and the flesh that are hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Isn't that the craziest thing? Because isn't that the hostility? Isn't that what we're all talking about? Discontent or I need peace. I'm going to do and be and strive and do and be and strive to the point where now I feel as though I am adhering to the commands of Christ to a better degree than I was. And the scripture says that person is hostile and cannot submit to God's law. Why? Because God's law says we must live in the Spirit that which God has accomplished. Indeed, it cannot, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And of course, Paul is talking about the unconverted here. I just made that little side idea that we also can be hostile in our thinking when we put on flesh. You, however, verse 9, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. See, you thought I was making that up when I started out the sermon, didn't you? The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, let me, let me state something and then move to Hebrews. The Spirit of God, God Himself in us, working in us, is our life. We're going to sing it. three 389 right there. All I have is Christ. God is our life. We are not our life unto God. God is our life. The Spirit of God in us is our life. Our bodies in all of their glory are dead. Our fleshliness in all of its perfection is dead. Our obedience is dead and absolute striving is dead. Now, I'm not saying, because has, he's already dealt with this. See, you got to know where Paul's come from. Paul's already said, okay, I'm preaching a gospel that is all of grace. I'm preaching a good report here of what God has done. And it's just he's done it and slung you into it. He snatched you out of death and crammed you into the, the bread dough of eternal life, Jesus Christ. And there's nothing you can, you can't get out of it. You can squirm, he's going to bake you in there, and you can't escape. There's no way you can get away. He's the big bodybuilding uncle that hugs forever, you know? You don't get away now, are you, boy? Gives you that noogie up there, and you got bruises on your skull? God will not let you go. And the natural response is, I can do what I want to do, live how I want to live, be how I want to be, the Adams Family. I mean, you know, we can just do what we want to do. There's no recourse. Of course there's a recourse in the context of our temporal lives. And the worst part is when we sin, we're actually (sighs) shaming Christ because He died for that sin. So should we continue to sin that grace may abound? It cannot be, Paul says. Do not do that. What's the instrument of keeping us in check? Praise and joy and peace and the gospel of grace, sovereign and free, and then the glory in the name of our Father and the reputation and the name of His body as we are, He is our head amongst the brethren. There's a lot at stake when we just sin, but not our eternal security, not God's redemptive work. It's not at stake. It's not at stake. The greater motivator to submission is the love of God over any condemnation. So, Paul's already dealt with that. That's why you read Romans, not just chapter (laughs) 8. Chapter 8. Oh, wow. This is great. Of course, it's great because we've gone through some struggles here, haven't we? The Spirit is life because of righteousness. So, God is our life. Because of righteousness, because God has killed his son in order to establish and uphold righteousness because he is going to give us a pass for our guilt. We have worked really hard to get our check. The check is due. Even if you don't pick it up from the employer, the employer has to send it to the state. And the state holds it in an escrow forever. An employer cannot take your money back if you don't pick, it up, pick up your final check. That's yours. The check of death is written for us. But Jesus cashed it. <laughs> you see? So, life because of righteousness. Because Jesus died, righteousness is upheld. Oh, goodness, I mean, you know, we're, we've got to get the Hebrews, but Romans 3, the righteousness of God is not displayed in the law, though it's a shadow of it. The prophets of the law bear witness to righteousness, but the, right, the true righteousness of God, the fulfillment of what the shadow of the law gives is Jesus Christ. And more than just Jesus in His person is His work of redemption. His propitiatory work of satisfying God the Father's wrath and justice and righteousness in His death for the sake of His people. How do I know? He grants you the faith to rest in the sufficiency of the work of His Son. But we're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We have peace. Peace within. Peace with God. Peace in the gospel. Peace with God the Father. Peace because of the work of Christ. Peace inside of our hearts and minds to know That we have eternal life. Now, go over to the book of Hebrews. And we'll spend the rest of our time here today. When we go and we begin to read in this text, it's so hard to start. This letter is written in such a way it's almost impossible to pop in the middle of it. It's really difficult. Because it is like you got... Eight minutes to write this, Paul, and go! And he just wrote, and it sent it, and it was done. It wasn't, you know, it's written in such a way that it is one message. It's one message. And then there's some application, and some therefore, and some commandments from from God through the Apostle Paul to the Hebrew Jewish, ethnic Jewish people who are in Christ Jesus, who are being tempted to look inwardly for their assurance who are being tempted to walk away from the peace that God has established through His Son and to try to find some solace, some contentment, some confidence in the doings of Judaism, which is to the strict adherence to the precepts of Moses, a.k.a. the law of God, the prophets, etc. And Paul starts this letter out by saying to to the recipients... God has spoken to us and our forefathers for a long, 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 long time through the prophets. And we've learned a lot about who He is, but now we know Him perfectly because He speaks to us through His Son, who he helped, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the cosmos. He is the radiance of, Of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins. He finished and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then this. Oh. This beautiful, beautiful, beautiful expressions. In verses 5 through verse 14 or through verse 13 about how God the Father even calls the Son God and then he tells the Hebrew people to pay attention just like they were told to pay attention in the Exodus and that those who didn't pay attention to the promises of God they found themselves dying in the wilderness for 40 years you know that's why God left Israel in the wilderness so that the unbelieving generation would die out And all the children were like, come on, Dad, really? I want to spend my childhood in the desert. Sorry. So pay attention. It's been given. The gospel has been given. The sovereignty of God and salvation has been promised. The power of God has been displayed. The promises of God in His person and by the Spirit have been given to His people and Faith has been given to those who are His. And then in chapter 3 of Hebrews, Paul talks about the fact that Jesus Christ is greater than angels, for chapter 1 and 2, and greater than all things, and greater than Moses, and greater than Melchizedek, and he keeps on talking, and greater than the prophets, because all of these things are shadows of the real. Jesus Christ is the one who has come, That he is the high priest that finished the work. He doesn't go in year after year after year. He finished. He got through. He rose from the dead. He sat down at the right hand of of righteousness. That's a picture of Jesus as the high priest that no high priest in the mortal flesh could ever have born of a man and a woman. No priest can go into the Holy of Holies as if he's there with his pops. Yeah, that's what Christ did. Christ is the Holy of Holies. Christ is where God meets man. Christ is the propitiation of our sins. Christ is the mercy seat. Christ is the law. Christ is the Ark of the Covenant. Christ is the bread that comes down from heaven. Christ is life. And He is seated. He is finished. He's moved on through the judgment seat. And He's done. He's raised from the, li- from, from the dead. And is alive today. And is seated with the, hev- with the Father in the heavenlies. This is the picture and so Paul reminds the Hebrew people of this and he says therefore then let us leave the elementary doctrine let us leave these things let us get beyond all this stuff Because God has made a promise and this promise is irrevocable. And let me tell you where your peace really comes from. Where your assurance comes from is the word of God remembering and being reminded by the spirit of God. Of the promises of God for his people in Christ Jesus. And it is a solid guarantee. Does that mean you won't doubt? We have times of doubt. But beloved the the faith that God grants us by his word and spirit eliminates that down. And then we're tempted. What about circumcision? Galatia. What about this? What about that? What about this? What about going back to the temple? What about ha ha, ha? You see? What about skirts? Jeans? Dresses? Ties? Suits? Kanga hats? What, what, what is it? You know? Loud music. Soft music. Drums. Organs. Choirs. No music at all. Smiles, frowns, happiness, pain. Heck, the Puritans, most of the Puritans actually believed that the whole point of redemption was to worry that you're going to go to hell. Just read them. They were miserable. They were miserable people. There's There's exceptions to that, but as a whole, read the Puritans. I'm probably lost. I'm probably unconverted. I'm probably reprobate. But oh God, please have mercy. That's a condition that you must be certain way and have a certain idea of your rep- of your of your wickedness in order for God to see you. God sees you in the in your death, beloved. God gives you to Christ at your best, which is wicked which is your worst. You realize self-righteousness is your worst. It's not your best. And Paul says, there's a promise. Well, listen, I've made promises. I promise if you go to bed, we'll go to Dairy Queen. I mean, you know, instead of saying, I'm the daddy and I want you to go to bed. "Ah, I'll give you ice cream, please. And you're like, what have I done? gosh, what a sinful thing to do. Or, if you don't go to bed, I'll kill you. I mean, you know, that kind of thing works too. Either way, there's something to look forward to on the other side. You didn't catch that joke, I guess. So when we tell promises, when we hear the word promise today, it means nothing. And we've Applied God in some way. We know that he won't uh, break his promises, but we have this really meh, blase attitude about promises. Well, God's promises, my neighbor's promises, he told me his dog would poop in my yard again, plop, plop. To each his own. What does the Scripture say about the promises of God? Verse 13 of chapter 6. Get ready. We're going to go to 6, we're going to go to 9, we're going to go to 10. And 11, and then John 10. Here we go. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since God he had no one greater by whom to swear in his promise, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, notice that language there, it wasn't that the promise had to be received, they would inherit it. Nothing they could do about it. Even if you don't know about it, faith comes to you through the hearing of the promise. to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. Now let me read that again. So when God desired, verse 17 of Hebrews 6, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. So what did he want to show to his people? The unchangeable character of his purpose. The immutability of God. The unchanging essence of His being. That everything He has purposed to do will come and everything He has promised to do is as good as done. So when He wanted to do that, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. Now think about that for a second. Is that not a statement of peace? Is that not a contract of contentment? That's what this is. That's what this is. God has promised, He's created a contract with Himself that His people will be at peace with Him through Christ Jesus and they will be content in Him. They will rest in Him. For the first time in my life, I've had the worst time staying asleep. My brain and my mind, stupid stuff. Sometimes it's like thinking about worrying things, but more recently, it's just dumb stuff. Oh, that water hose broke this morning. I was supposed to go fix that. Did I turn the water off? Oh, my goodness, the water was going to be high. 3 a.m. Well, while I'm up, I might as well go to the restroom. Might as well get a drink of water, you see. Think and think and think and think. And rest doesn't happen. But in the promises of God, we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to contemplate. We don't have to dig under the surface of what God has said to see what He really means. Or if He says it's by grace, we have to figure out what grace looks like in the context of its establishment in our own minds and lives. We can take it to the bank. We can rest in it. We can sit upon it and sit still It is impossible for God to lie. And then we who have fled for refuge. Might have strong encouragement. To what? To hold fast to the hope set before us. The promise of God in salvation. The promise of God in the assembly. The promise of God from his word. The promise of God in our own inner peace. The promise of God to carry us through. And that every Place and every opportunity and every experience of discontentment and frustration and peacelessness that comes along are all part of God showing and pointing us to the very fact that He alone is our peace. In verse 19 of Hebrews 6, it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Why is it that when we sing the song, It Is Well, and I don't want to get into the weeds in that either. I don't, just We sing the song, it does something, doesn't it? You know why it does something? Because it's composed beautifully. If it were a chant, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul, it is... No, we'd be like, oh my gosh, all the people over 40 in here would be like, what have we come to? You know? All the kids would be like, yay, it's well with my soul too. I'm excited. Why? Because the composition would get you happy. But I mean, it is well. It is well. All the men, you know. With my soul, you've got chills running up. That ain't God the Spirit. That's good composition. But when we listen, when we listen, when we know the promise keeper. Who's the promise keeper? Not the man. <laughs> That was a terrible choice of words. When we know the one who is the keeper of his promise, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, God, our Father, he is the promise keeper. Then that type of truth has teeth. Yet yeah, we know that there is nothing that can take away our rest and our joy, but yet by the time we're at lunch, it's not very well with our soul. Not very well with our soul. Why? Because there is a spiritual battle with the forces of the dark enemies of God and the Spirit of God and our flesh at work. Why does God do that? I don't know. Ask Him. He's sovereign in it. But we have the promises of God as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope. That enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I want you to see this. What will wash us and prepare us to enter into the presence of God? Sometimes Christians spend more time worrying about their belts and shoes matching than they do the fact that God the Son has cleansed them of all unrighteousness. Beloved, I'll tell you how we're going to enter into eternity. Butt naked and not ashamed. Not ashamed. And that horrifies some of us. It will not horrify you, it will not even be on your mind. Go back and listen to Genesis. (laughs) It's a promise. Some of us would rather be clothed in hell than naked in heaven, right? Just that fear. I don't know, that's a toss-up, and I'm being funny. We enter into the place behind the curtain because of God's promise. We go beyond the pomp and the formalities and the, and the, and the precepts and the show and the religion. We go beyond all that showmanship which pointed to the severity of God's righteousness and His justice. We bring our lambs in and the priests would be bathed over and over again and bathe, their, bathe themselves and their bodies and their hands and their feet and, and anoint themselves in certain ways and prepare their clothes in certain ways so they could walk into a curtain and pour a thing of blood and run out. Got to get out of here. Oh, God might kill me. Scary stuff. But Jesus, as verse 20 teaches us, has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. And then it says, after the order of Melchizedek, which takes some further explanation, but just understand that that's a picture of an eternal kingdom. It's not a real eternal kingdom. It's a picture of an eternal kingdom. That's why he uses that comparison. Jesus has gone there, and he torn out all the shadows. And he busted down all... The oracles and all the different things and the showbread. And he jumped over all the tables and he just tore down the curtain. And he bled himself out before the Father. And all that is washed away and we are cleansed. And we go into the presence of God intimately because of the promises of God through Christ Jesus. Beloved, faith rests and sits there. Sometimes it takes further explanation. Well, how? What? Go to Hebrews chapter nine. It's almost impossible to start there. But if you start, if you go to verse eleven, I'll back up there. It talks about Jesus as a high priest who has come, and what he has done is greater and perfect and everlasting. It has not been made by and, and greater than what was made by hand. He entered, verse 12, once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats. I've already said this, but I want you to hear it in God's word. By the blood of goats and calves, but he entered into the holy places by his own blood. Listen to this. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Securing, not providing, not making an opportunity for, securing an eternal redemption, a purchase that is irrevocable and forever. For if God wanted the blood of animals, and so on and so forth, my goodness. And if the blood of animals would pacify in a way of patience the wrath of God as a foreshadow of what was to come, what would the blood of Christ actually do in reality? It will appease Him. At the end of it all, the blood of Christ, through whom, verse 14, the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What are dead works? Thinking that we can affect our salvation. Therefore, verse 15 is where I wanted to go. Therefore, He, Christ, is the mediator... Of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For when there is a will involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. You know, in order for me to get great granddaddy's estate, he has to die, and that death has to be established by a death certificate. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first Covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, imagine being sprinkled with blood, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, into the presence of God, to now appear on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. I've already said this stuff, but I want you to hear it. Nor has he offered himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed to man to die once, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, listen very carefully, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly awaiting for him. You see what saving faith does? It doesn't ignore sin, but it longs for redemption. When we're resting by the Spirit and we're at peace, we look forward to that. To that day when we will never fight in this flesh again. Now go over to Hebrews 10. And then I'll be done. Starting in verse 8. When he talks about the shadow of the law, and we've been cleansed of sin... And that the sacrifices did nothing to take away sins, but a body he prepared for me. But in verse 8, when he said above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. When he does this, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified, set apart, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, when we say offering, we're not talking about Jesus saying, Here I am, use me. He gave himself. And as every priest stands daily as his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. See, Paul establishes this in the very first three verses of this text. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until the enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering, verse 14, he has perfected for all time those who are being set apart and made holy. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts. And write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I want you to hear that. When Christ died, there's nothing else God requires for forgiveness. It's done. There's nothing else that the creature must establish in order to be at peace with God. God's peace is established through the blood of his Son. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers. This is really the text. I should just preach another hour. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now imagine that in the picture of entering into the presence of God, we worry and we labor without peace of wondering, are we able to be presented before the Father? Because we know our sin. We know our discouragement. We know the attitudes of our hearts. We know what we really are and what we really struggle with. And we have this temptation to listen to the lies and to the minutiae around us and to the circumstances and say, well, I can't do it. Beloved, you know how many times I've thought, well, I can't serve God. I can't preach. I can't pray. I can't. I'm not worthy. And that's a true thing. But Christ has made us worthy to be in the, to be in the presence of God our Father. And so we have confidence to enter into the places of, to the place of the presence of God. Imagine opening a door and this sign saying, This is the presence of God. Enter in. It would say, Enter ye in. And we would be scared to do so. We would be worried, Am I ready? And the kids would be like, Yay, lights! You know, is there candy? And all of us were like, no, no, don't go in there. They've got the right idea. Just go in there. Approach our Father in that intimacy. Does it disregard reverence and respect and gravity and holiness and righteousness and awesomeness? No. But as the writer here, Paul, will say over in chapter 12, we're not coming to the tempest of Sinai. We're coming to the party. We're coming to the marriage celebration. We're coming to the the reception of the saints who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. So we have confidence to enter in the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, look at verse 22. It's a command. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart. With full assurance of faith. And the condition of our conscience is this. With our hearts sprinkled clean. We know we're sinners. But we're saved by grace. And the blood of Jesus has clothed us in His righteousness. So our attire and our whole presence. The countenance of our entire person. Has been covered by the righteousness of Christ. So we are fit to walk through the door of holiness. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 23. How can we do this? How do I know that I'm in this state? Look at the very next phrase. For he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. That's the truth of the gospel. That's what makes it the good report. God is faithful. And so because of this, Let us not, well, I'm getting ahead, the negative. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good deeds and to service. Let us not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some of you, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Paul goes on to say faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen." Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Listen to what he says. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, beloved, no matter how far away you feel from grace... The resting place is God's promise. The resting place is faith in Christ Jesus. And that is inner peace, as Paul would tell the Philippians, beyond all understanding. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this peace that comes only through Christ. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you, Father, for tolerating us and putting up with our knuckleheadedness. Our foolishness. Father, our doubts and fears. And we thank you, Lord, that you've provided the means through the discipline of learning and worshiping and teaching and correction that we all will grow. And that you didn't leave us in that place of despair. You, you don't leave us in that place of bitterness. Even though we find ourselves there and heading that direction. Father, you... Steer our paths back to righteousness, back to faith in Jesus Christ, our righteousness. And we don't look at ourselves as our hope, but we look at the one who gave himself for us. And so, Father, as we leave our worship today, we pray that you will be with us. Lord, help us to be patient with those who doubt. Lord, help us to teach and encourage one another in the faith. Help us to speak truth, knowing that you alone will give understanding. And let us do it and endure it with much patience, just as our Lord has had much patience when he gave his life and he endured such hostility with sinners, even though he is our God. In his name we pray to you, Father. Amen.